Warning, this podcast may contain strong language. Enjoy the show. Hey everyone, welcome to Film Fight a podcast where we take two movies with a similar plot or story and match them up to see which one did it better, which one was more successful, and try to figure out why. Uh, I'm Zach Bassetta. And I'm Amber Hollinger. Thanks for, for being with us to on our maiden voyage. Ooh, our marquee matchup. Oh, yeah, it's very, I like alliteration. <laughs> That's good. Uh, so just uh, anyone listening out there, you might hear some strong language, so that's just a fair warning. Got little kidlets. Maybe they're used to hearing it, maybe not. Earmuffs. So I guess uh, it's worth noting, we're both writers. We're both writers. We are both writers. Yeah. I, I went to film school, damn it. <laughs> I, I earned a well, degree. you were far superior. I also went to film school. Great. So we're both uh, film snobs and you also have two podcasts. I have directed a few television series. We are both just lovers of story and film and everything that kind of goes therein. And both you and I just recently got into a personal discussion about scripts and what makes two scripts that are so similar on the outset, what makes one a little bit better, what makes one work. Yeah. Like, I think there will be eventually on here a lot of remake episodes. There, There's that kind of comparison, but there's also movies where it's an homage to another movie or a, a ripoff, you know, and like looking at these movies and kind of saying like, well, why does this same idea work here and not so much here? Absolutely. I even love the idea we've talked before about, you know, the whole James Bond franchise. There's mm -hmm. so many movies there within one franchise, yes, there's different directors, different actors, but there's some scripts that just hands down are more appealing than others. Why? What makes one film more successful in a long running franchise than others? And so that's another direction it could go. I mean, like there's obviously the spy movie itself. We could compare a good James Bond movie and a bad James Bond movie. There's a plethora of directions. So many. Yes, I like an unreasonable it. amount of content to examine out there. An unreasonable amount of options Possibly. is my preference. <laughs> Today's matchup, we've yes. got two great ones. Today is the vehicular manslaughter matchup. <laughs> the action thriller edition. Today we're looking at Duel versus Joyride. You want to tell us about Duel, Zach? I do. Duel's one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, originally was a, a television movie uh, back when they did those sort of things on, on TV. Uh, from 1971. I think people think of a TV movie today as like super cheap, which I mean, I guess Duel was inexpensive, but I mean, it was a lot of cinematic effort was put into these things back then, you know? Um, I mean, it's it's the first feature length film by uh, Steven Spielberg. So it's notable for that reason. You cannot miss that. And it's the kind oh, of the yeah. thing that gave him credibility as a director. Exactly. And it's also interesting because if you think about it, Duel is sort of a Jaws idea, you know, in that it's there's this monster and it's out there and you can't stop it. And you never know when it's going to show up. And so it is interesting that it's similar to Jaws and written by uh, Richard Matheson, who, if you don't know that name, he did a bunch of Twilight Zone episodes, including Terror at 20,000 Feet, which I think is one of the more well-known episodes of Twilight Zone. Uh, he wrote I Am Legend, the original, uh, which was later remade with Will Smith, of course. And his son wrote my favorite, co-wrote my favorite film, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Just want to get that out there. Wow. Yes. Chris Matheson. Feather in the cap. That's right. <laughs> and I guess, yeah, Steven Spielberg was hired uh, for this off of, he directed the Columbo pilot, which I don't know if that's common knowledge or not, but. Uh, it's not common knowledge. I just got Spielberg woke after many years. It's interesting. It really is. And I guess it was uh, his use of suspense in that episode that uh, he was allowed to do Duel. And uh, the lead actor was Dennis Weaver. I don't know what to really uh, reference him in that he was in for like today's audience. He was in like Gunsmoke. 
Yeah, I think this is kind of an older generation pull. Steven Spielberg found him in Touch of Evil and became obsessed with him. And even though he had this character in mind the entire time that he was developing this with Matheson, Dennis didn't sign on for the movie until the day before the shoot. Didn't know that. Can you imagine just going yeah. on set and not really knowing? Because, well, I hadn't seen Dennis Weaver in anything else before I saw him in this. And he's such a unassuming dude. He just it's, looks like a salesman. Obviously, the costuming department did a lot to visually just feed the audience what you need to know about his character. But man, was that great casting. He did such a good job on that. Totally believable. Yes, absolutely. So let's, uh, let's look at the plot summary as found on IMDb for Duel. While traveling through the desert for an appointment with the client, the businessman David Mann from California passes a slow and old tanker truck. The psychotic truck driver feels offended and chases David along the empty highway, trying to kill him. What I love about IMDb plot summaries is that they're kind of written like Wikipedia pages where, who knows? That is an accurate description. It's a fairly accurate description. What I like it is that we can compare it apples to apples when we talk yep. about our contender for there the week, Joyride. Gosh darn Joyride. These are great. This is going to be such a good thing to talk about. Joyride was not originally titled Joyride. It was originally titled Roadkill and written under the working title of Squelch. Which Joyride is a much is the best option of those three. It really is. But, you know, in the UK, they would not release this film under the title of Joyride. They made them release it under Roadkill because they didn't get the pun or the play on words. Joyride is something that's enjoyable. <laughs> well, yeah, no shit. That's ironic. It's a play on words. That's fine. That's it's fine, UK. <laughs> exactly. You're not getting. And then Joyride? director John Dahl. He's kind of best known for Kill Me Again, Red Rock West. Kind of a noir guy. Definitely more of a noir director. Not as or well known as Spielberg, but... And maybe it's Joyride. worth mentioning it's that Joyride was John Dahl's sixth feature film. So a more experienced director at that point than Spielberg was when he was making Duel. Very worth mentioning. This was released in 2001. It stars the late and Paul Walker. I have to mention really quickly, almost six weeks apart from being released 30 years after Duel. So it's also kind of a 30th anniversary thing too. Just had to, I found that interesting. If nobody knew, J.J. Abrams put Steven Spielberg on, I mean, everyone's in awe of Steven Spielberg, but it's a hero. It's an idol of J.J. Abrams. So this was very much an homage. Although I actually feel like John Dahl was the one that added all the homage stuff because it's not in the script. Something to explore. Remind me, because I got a, <laughs> I got a problem. <laughs> so... Uh, Joyride stars Paul Walker, Steve Zahn, Lily Sobieski, and Ted Levine as the voice of Rusty Nail, the antagonist. And he was not billed, like his credits do not name that. It is only released in Wikipedia and IMDb. Which is strange because like he's got such a great voice. I mean, and he's, and he's in the movie so much. Eh, just an odd... You know, I just recently in Emmy Magazine read a whole article on narrators and many have such respect for the story that they are telling that they feel putting their name to it takes you out of the story and they have so much respect they'd rather not get credit for it and service the story, which I think is very so remarkable. Ted, Ted Levine thought that adding his name would give too much gravitas. <laughs> to like the character of Rusty Neal needs to stay ambiguous. And then writers, Joyride, J.J. Abrams, and maybe a lesser known, Clay Tarver. I'll say he wrote, Clay Tarver wrote this in five episodes of Son uh, Silicon Valley. Yes, he's mostly known for being a writer and producer on Silicon Valley. So not as prolific, more in the TV realm. I could not find any information about how they partnered up together to write this thing. One, one interesting just writing thing is you can tell it's a writing partnership if there's an ampersand. And if it's the and spelled out, it was written separately. 
It's a little writing. I note. mean, I assume it's still the case. I don't know. There's no rules out there. It's the wild, that's wild true. west. That's true. There were anybody who has the DVD of this, the super old like us, will there will know that there were four alternate endings written for this script. Three of them were filmed, and the one that they chose is the only version where our antagonist lives. Some very interesting choices. Joyride plot summary as found on IMDb. College student Lewis decides to drive across the country to see Benna, a friend who doesn't know that Lewis is interested in her romantically. Unfortunately for his plans, Lewis gets saddled with his raucous spirited older brother Fuller, whose on the road pranks get the brothers and Benna sucked into a nightmare when a psychotic truck driver takes offense. See, rock <laughs> came up with raucous spirited oh, it's not oh even it's just a weird phrase yeah uh why maybe after this both you and i should apply at imdb for summary positions as writers <laughs> i'm still waiting for netflix to call me back for a caption guy proofreader because whoever they've hired currently is not doing a great job <laughs> So well, there we are. That's our, those are our two contenders. We've got a director in dual, first directorial foray. We have... An experience, oh, that's interesting. Because we have in dual an inexperienced write, uh, director with an experienced writer. And for Joyride, we have an experienced director with inexperienced writers. Because J.J. Abrams had done Armageddon at this point. He hadn't even done Felicity not um, a bad resume though. Sure. To start yeah. with that. But yes, at that point, and we'll get into talking, well, maybe we'll just get into that now. Since we know we've got obviously a time gap. So we have to take into account the period of time which each film was released, but script to script, there's, I think it's still a very even comparison. Mm -hmm. And I, I, again, there's, there's a lot of differences in the squelch script. Well, by the way, I I didn't realize <laughs> until reading it that the squelch was referencing CB squelch. I thought it was just the sound effect of running someone over. <laughs> <laughs> just very like sophomoric frat boy. Oh, well, yeah, it would fit in with the script. I mean, it's just, it's written like it starts off with uh, Paul Walker is, is on the phone and the first line in uh, of dialogue is like, oh, you broke up with Dave? And then in the movie, at least they like have a little conversation before getting into the Dawson's Creek bullshit. <laughs> well, I just want to talk about the writers themselves before we get into the scripts. And we talked a little bit before about some of the things that Richard Matheson had written. And I found the backstory here for him as a writer very interesting. Matheson is primarily a novelist. He is a prolific, like a mad prolific novelist. He has 22 of his novels have been adapted into screenplays and been made into movies. And some of those have been The Shrinking Man, which was made into The Incredible Shrinking Woman. There's a story, a short story, Button Button, which got made into the film The Box. Bid Time Return was Somewhere in Time and Do Not Get Me Started. I'm fucking somewhere in time. Oh, I I'm ruined to this day. My mom made me watch this story and she built it to me as a love story. And it's a fucking nightmare. I, I didn't actually finish it. Oh, well, then thank God, because I can mm. tell you it ends with this guy just basically lost in time, searching for his love for eternity. So never finds her. He's just lost in fucking time, somewhere in time. Kind of like a uh, quantum leap. Oh, my God. It just it scarred me to this day. I can't recover. He's also written What Dreams May Come, controversial film, very polarizing. Then I found it really interesting that of all of the novels that he wrote, he has only adapted two of his own novels or short stories into screenplays. One is Duel that we'll be discussing today, and one is I Am Legend, also pretty popular. Yeah, it's been made into several movies. Uh, last Last Man on Earth with Vincent Price, The Omega Man with Charlton Heston, and I Am Legend with Will Smith. Funny to me, he's only he's only adapted two of his own novels, but he's adapted several of other people's novels into screenplay. The Raven, Dracula, The Night Stalker, 
I like his backstory. I like that he's a novelist. It means that he's going to think about long format, maybe different than a traditional screenwriter who hasn't written a novel. They are very different formats, even though they're both long format. It is worth mentioning that Duel started out as a short story. Short story that first appeared in Playboy. I guess uh, Richard Matheson wrote it. It was the day that uh, Kennedy got assassinated yeah. and uh, him and a friend were driving home. They were going to go golfing, but, you know, got the news and decided to just go home and got tailgated by a crazy semi. <laughs> I was really scary. And then whatever, and I have not read, admittedly, uh, Richard Matheson's short story version. Oh, me either. But Steven Spielberg's secretary was reading Playboy. Very progressive. I like that. Yeah, she liked the art. <laughs> And brought the story to Stephen, and he was super interested and went... Um, and he was looking for something to kind of break him in at this point. Duel was, was his chance. Sometimes short stories are just meant to be short stories. What gives it enough legs that you can drag it out into a full-length movie? So sometimes people will take a short story idea that really was just never meant to be elongated. And then you can feel that when you're watching the movie Duel, however, I think was handled so cleverly that you are able to be engaged and follow this very short idea about somebody being a victim of road rage. <laughs> and this really worked for me. Yeah, it's a really... I mean, I think staying slow paced is misleading, but I mean, it's paced really well in that, like, even though it kind of is a slow burn, you're you're with it. I mean, I think you know, a lot of people want to take a small idea and like stretch it far beyond its limits. But, you know, Richard Matheson is a writer who can take that idea and, and really flesh it out. I mean, at least for me, like I'm with it from the beginning to the end. And now I cannot say the same thing. And for me, that is the additional footage, which we can start talking about, or we can start talking about Clay and Clay Tarver and JJ Abrams and their histories as writers. I mean, I just have never been, um, but I can't think of like, what's your favorite JJ Abrams movie? I think that he has some very strong visual language instincts. He obviously has some good ideas. He's created, oh man, let's see, he wrote Armageddon, Cloverfield, Star Trek, some of the newer movie iterations, The Force Awakens. He created what, Felicity and what else did he, Alias. Alias. Christ, what have I done? I mean, I like David. I like Cloverfield. I like Armageddon. You know, I think that he has kind lost? of been, yeah, lost. I mean, he's, but that's again, he's, he's produced these, he's gotten these things off the ground. He's never, for me, written like a satisfying ending. I think he's one of those guys that probably should stick with directing and doesn't have to write his shit. Have they, everybody has their own journey through completion of the script or an idea. A lot of writers start with the ending first because you kind of have to know to write into it, to write through it. You have to know where it's going. That was right? not the plan clearly uh, for George. Oh, I don't like JJ clearly has another process. <laughs> oh, I just thought the script was like super juvenile. Like as I was reading, I was just like, if I turned squelch, or roadkill into a like a festival i just feel like i'd get or a class even better like a class i would it would get torn to pieces so i would love to talk about duel as it went from a tv movie to a theatrical release this is pretty cool for this time it was a cbs movie of the week and it garnered such attention and favorability that universal wanted to option it to a feature film but it's 74 minutes as a tv movie it didn't meet the criteria of a feature-length film so they needed to add it had to be 90 minutes, I think, to qualify. Yeah, which is interesting film. because I'm almost positive that feature film length now is 78 minutes. I wouldn't know because everybody is like a three-hour movie. Oh, yeah. Think that you had to be a six-hour experience to get in the theater. I wish they'd go back. Please, love of God, make it 75 minutes. I know. I'd love to go see a movie that was just at 90 minutes. Just go clean. Just walk out and just go, I feel fresh. And it's still like daytime <laughs> outside. <laughs> That's what I want. Go to a movie and come out and it's still the day. <laughs> so there were some interesting, and I don't know, any writer out there knows that 
when they have to add new information to an already finished story, that can create problems. You didn't initially imagine these in your story thread, because usually the things that you add are things that are either going to give you character insight so that you're more bonded or understanding in what's happening in your character, or it's stuff that gets you to the next story point. It's always something that's going to move you ahead in the film. So once you already have all that established, and you have to go back in and add things, it is a very, very tricky thing to do. There were three added scenes to get them to the correct oh, I'm like interesting, because I've seen Duel so many times, I've I, and I hadn't read the script, but as I was reading it, I only counted two things that, that weren't in the script. What, what was the third? So the three things they added was the introduction. They took that weird kind of POV where David Mann's car is pulling out of the garage and then driving through a residential area, and then that event hooks up to the original introduction from the TV movie where he's driving alone on the highway and that, that makes sense because that opening credit scene is so much pain. oh my god the no the opening that's the, one of the things that killed me there were three things that they added and I thought that was bullshit and didn't help but the other two scenes added I thought really really strategic and well done for me, yeah. it was just clear that they were killing minutes. In the original television version, they're setting a tone. They're letting you know that whoever we're following POV, like literal POV, they're on a road trip and the area that we're traveling through is not highly populated. And this is informative setting the tone going forth in the movie. Going out of the garage and then driving through town and then on the road was really just time filler. Well, but like you said, you're so few things you can add to I can see what like, yes I mean it's because like as you're watching it you're just like come on let's get to the actual thing yeah I mean if, if you got to add so much time whatever it was 12 minutes the stuff in the movie that was added well there's one thing that's like well I guess they're both very Spielberg now that I think about it but the first one is the main character David Mann comes up to a railroad crossing and the truck tries to push him into the train as he's there at the, the railroad crossing. And the other one is where David comes upon this school bus that is like stranded on the side of the road. It's like broken down or something. And I can't remember exactly why, but he decides to go try to help him. And as he's helping him, his car, the bumper gets stuck on the bus as the truck comes up. And so now David's panicking. He's like, we got, I got to get out of here. This truck's going to kill everyone. And so he finally gets the car uh, unstuck and he drives off. And as he looks back, the truck is just helping the bus helping them get back on the road. Love that moment. Well, that's one thing that I think I wanted to mention about the difference between Joyride and Duel, where it's very clear in Duel that David is the only person, the only target that this truck has. There's a couple of instances where he lets other people go or even helps that school bus. Whereas in Joyride, side characters are getting killed just because they come in cross paths with Paul Walker or whatever. And I think it's so much more psychologically terrifying that it doesn't matter who else comes across. It's you that... I'm gonna fuck with. I love that. To me, that really, really added to the film. Because basically, if you backtrack one of the other, and maybe there were four scenes then, because you're right, the train track one was added, then that initial, the scene where David Mann stops for gas, He's already cut this guy off twice and he's starting to get a little dodgy and feel weird about it. The second time he cuts this guy off, it seems like he's super aggressive and he's like, hey, what the fuck's going on? Once he stops at the gas station and it's like one of the best moments of the script, I think, and a choice written by the writer and then supported by Steven Spielberg is that we will never see the villain in this film. It is very, very purposeful. I think Stephen had a great instinct to never, never show it. Matheson originally well, wrote it like that. Exactly, yeah. You're going to see only from David Mann's point of view, oh my gosh, maybe I should just read it, this introduction, and it will get into the, addition, um, the added footage, I promise, 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 because I thought it was really, really smart. He's just pulled in, his fuel gauge is at the quarter tank mark. Angle past man toward the gas station. Slowing down, man turns in and breaks to the left of the pump island nearest the highway. Cutting off the motor, he rubs his eyes, yawns, begins to stretch. The sound of the truck motor behind him makes him twist around. Point of view shot, the truck. Seen through the rear window, Looming hugely, only the lower portion of it is visible as it's steered toward the right of the island. The camera draws back, and to man's left, 
turning with him. He watches as the truck comes beside him at the island with a squeal of a brake. Trailer hitch is parallel to his front doors. The camera keeps turning with man's head until it's shooting past him toward the cab of the truck. We see the hand of the driver on the steering wheel only. And one of the things I like about the screen direction written in by Matheson is that he does make sure here at some point to get a helicopter shot of David Mann's car and our Peterbilt 281. Because yeah. visually, without saying a word, you are understanding that this truck next to this small car is humongous. It dwarfs it. It swallows it. You realize that one wheel of this motherfucker is going to crush David Mann's car. They set up these wonderful shots of where you're just seeing a boot and you're just seeing a hand and you, then you don't see anything else and David Mann is getting itchy. One of the scenes then added in is David Mann going in and making a phone call to his wife. Oh yeah. So it seemed kind of like a strange thing, but then when you go back into the genesis of the screenwriting process, Matheson had considered originally to have David Mann's wife in the car traveling with him, and then ultimately made the decision that no, this was going to be mano a mano. I'm going to yeah, isolate my to lengthen the time. He wanted to potentially add the yeah. Yeah. So it was interesting that when he had the chance, and I, by the way, love that he chose to keep these adversaries one-on-one. -on -one. He goes in to make this phone call. Why did they put that in there? Like, what was the thought process? What I was thinking, how I interpret it later on after seeing the entire film, was our character needed a little more fleshing out, I think, for the feature film. When we first meet him, he just seems like a regular guy. He's got a little chip on his shoulder and we're not sure why. There's a little bit of dick sore fighting. He initially is just, wants to get someplace. He passes this big truck on the highway. We He's have got a meeting to get to, damn it. We've all been there stuck behind a truck. But at such point then where it doesn't seem like a good idea to fuck with this guy, he's just kind of a jerk and wants to do it again. When he has the phone call with his wife, we get an insight of, he's a little bit henpecked. He's a little bit emasculated. It kind of helps feed into his mindset of, okay, he's, he's having an extraordinarily bad day. But even better than when you talk about the school bus, there's so many things that that does. This comes right on the heels of the diner scene. So he goes into the diner and he sees the Peterbilt built 281 outside and he thinks this guy is inside the diner with him but he doesn't know what this guy looks like, right? He's never seen him. So he becomes so paranoid that he inadvertently picks a fight with an innocent stranger and gets his ass kicked. His paranoia is building up that at this point, he's starting to doubt his own instincts that maybe he really is being stalked and in trouble. When we get to the incident with the school bus, it's another opportunity to give character insight. This, so far, this character's an asshole. This is kind of his save the cat moment where reluctantly he helps these school kids, but we can see underneath it all, oh my God, this guy's had a terrible day. He's lost his fight with his wife and he's got this road rage thing. He has to get to this meeting and he's gonna stop and help these kids. Underneath it all, he's probably a good guy. He's trying to do the right thing. Then when the truck comes back and he's freaking out and he's got to get out of there and he peels off and he looks in his rear view mirror and sees the truck helping the school bus, like you said, there's getting two big pieces of information that we need to know. He's targeting just David. And there's a little flicker of doubt in David Mann's mind. Am I now just crazy because this guy is helping out the school bus. Am I reading into this? I love that it plays into him questioning himself. He's ultimately right, but I thought it added something to the movie. In comparing it to Joyride, one thing that Joyride does do similarly is they also don't show the driver, but you also don't ever really see the truck in Joyride you're vaguely aware of it being a semi. And I think towards the end, you kind of see the cab and stuff, but throughout the film, you don't see the truck or, or like, because I guess you have to be able to trick the audience into thinking it might be an ice cream truck. One thing that, that they did do differently is in Duel, David doesn't know really what he did. In Joyride, they know exactly what they did. It's their fault. They deserve it. I didn't pick up 
too much of like an asshole vibe from David. I, I, I guess I picked up like more of him just like being in, in kind of like a hurry and like, I'm, I'm a businessman and I, I got somewhere to be. In the opening of the film, when he goes to the, the gas station, the guy's kind of like, hey, you need a new radiator hose. He's like, yeah, hey, yeah, whatever. It just seems like a thing that he would kind of, because I'm in a hurry, I got a place to be. Not knowing that it would come into play at the end of the film. Which is also great foreshadowing, obviously, for the audience. Everyone sitting and watching the film was like, ah, shit. You know, because he also thought he was being scammed. It wasn't even necessarily that he was late at that point. He's just looking at the, he's very dismissive. And that's said, another how, thing. how many times have I heard that before? Yeah. yeah, I mean, he's kind of snotty and uppity in almost every interaction that he has. He's not a super likable character. Oh, that's true. That's true. Like, I think it's interesting... In Duel, there's not really any opportunity for David to get away. I mean, he's trying. Like, he does everything he can to get away from this guy. There are several instances oh, of Joyride where they God. Can get the fuck out of there and be done with this. Uh. <laughs> they, they didn't have to open the trunk. They didn't have to turn the CB back on. I mean, oh, all these things. I want to rip into that like no other, and I will. The things that I didn't think work in Duel, in Matheson's version, was the device of narration and voiceover. This film was so visually strong and clear. We did not need to hear David Mann's character talking to himself or the voiceover in his head. It was so clear what he was thinking, that he was paranoid. It really took me out of the film. That was something I didn't agree with. And that was something from the very get-go that Matheson strongly believed in. I think for me, it was more just the dialogue. Like there's nothing dated really about Duel to me other than a lot of the dialogue. A lot of the stuff he said is just is very 70s sounding for some reason. And just while I'm thinking about it, I just have to mention in the Joyride movie, not the script, in the movie, they make a point to say that the, tr the car that Paul Walker buys is a 1971 Chrysler, which was the year that Duel came out. In the script, it's a 79. So I give this homage credit to John Dahl. I think that is totally valid right there. Now we have to say that in these discussions, we're trying to keep it at the level of the story and the script, but we are totally know as, as writers and filmmakers here that a script is your, is your jumping off point and it will always have a status of evolution throughout the creative process. This is, should be expected. Hopefully it will be enhanced and not detracted from, but make there, are so many good changes. there are decisions that the directors, producers, and actors make that ultimately the screenwriter may or may not have control over. So we give that caveat across the board. Just real quick, the, the script for Joyride, it turns into essentially like Friday the 13th. Paul Walker and Fur go home and Rusty Nail shows up like at their neighborhood. It got, it just got insane. I still, I would love to know why so many iterations were created why so many iterations were filmed. If anybody out there has the 411, let me know. And why there's 411 endings. For me, the biggest difference between Duel and Joyride were two things. One, Matheson chose to never reveal the motivation of the antagonist. We don't know why this guy is targeting David. What's important is that there's enough information given that the viewer can assume. Yes, also we can follow. We can follow what's happening. <laughs> mm -hmm. My second thing is that Masson chose to keep David Mann's character isolated, like we talked before. So those were the big difference. One is a solo journey, kept David isolated. And then we gave our, you know, our characters somebody else to work against. And there's things that I give merit to that idea. And I think it's not the idea, it's the application thereof that failed. Mm -hmm. I got I to gotta read just a couple of lines from the, the Squelch script. Oh, 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 please do that. Please do that. Tires spinning so loud, you can't believe it. Slowly getting close, closer, closer than you think it could. Who writes like that? <laughs> so loud, you can't believe it? Oh my God. And you're, first of all, I can't believe it. It's so ambiguous. It's kind of screenwriting 101, no, no. It felt like it was a different, like from the ending to a different film. 
And it probably was since there were 50 different endings <laughs> exactly. written for the film. Well, but here, my biggest, biggest problem, I think Tarver and Abrams tried to tell too many stories here. They wanted, I think there's a merit of an idea of adding Steve another, Hall. like a, a loved one, whether it's some mm -hmm. kind of uh, love interest or a familial relationship, whatever that is, there's merit to giving unpredictability of somebody that you care about. So if you've got somebody traveling with you in the car, you can control your own actions. You can't control theirs. People are going to react different ways. You also, it's a primal instinct to protect yourself, but I think it's an even greater primal instinct to protect someone you love. So there is an elevation of stakes there by adding somebody else in the journey and where it lost it for me in, in that attempt what story are you telling? I've got a story about estranged brothers and are they going to reconcile or are they going to get to know each other? What is that? So there's an estranged family situation and then there's a love interest story. Okay, is it a romance story? Is you about forget about for like a third of the movie. Yeah, for most of the movie, it doesn't even come into play. But then let's introduce it and then and then it's a, and then it's a threesome, then it's a love triangle. And then for all this time, then there's no suspense and you're just talking about what wait what's happening here and so, then let's introduce a second girl that oh, is actually sure. a victim absolutely let's introduce her and then forget about her and then bring her up at the very end when it makes no sense yeah and in the script that character is brutally murdered yes then they chose to keep charlotte alive good old charlotte the college roommate I, there are things that I will forgive. Um, I will give credit that there was a lot of exposition given in a short period of time. Kudos, that's hard to do. I'll forgive the, the unbelievable act of taking a plane ticket and impulsively selling it for a chick. I have an 18-year-old son. He would absolutely do that. I'm like, okay, young love is impulsive and passionate and creative. That's I guess cool. it's just a... <laughs> continuity. Paul Walker is at a different college than this girl he grew up with, who he wants to hook up with, and he doesn't have a car, but I guess it's like spring break, and so he's like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna refund my airplane ticket that I was gonna use to fly home, use that money to buy a car, and come pick you up on the way. It's very convoluted. It is so complicated, and it didn't need to be. Fuller didn't need to be involved. Not only do you have too many storylines that you're trying to tie into one story that don't have anything to do with the other, nobody acts in a way that is even within the realm of believability. I've got a list. Uh -huh. All of the actions of all the characters, unbelievable. All of them. Maybe, I don't know, Charlotte wasn't there to really, I guess I believe her. She just came in and drove away and that's all we know. Well, how would Rusty Nail even fucking know who Charlotte exactly. is? Exactly. So here's all my, here's my list of the biggest unbelievers. So Lewis, our main character, they're showing you that he is this straight-laced kid that, that plays by the rules. If you can buy that he would go along with the final prank of sending Rusty Nail, the stranger, to a hotel where they're actually staying, that's hard. But if I can get past that, in the morning, they discover that Rusty Nail has ripped the jaw off of the man at the hotel that they played the prank on. Mm -hmm. And they fess up to the police. The police then take them to see the man with his jaw ripped off. No, police don't do this. Police come to the hotel room to question you. They don't say, let me show you the murder victim. That was for the audience to see how brutal this was. You could have done a police photo. It served the like, script. Then the brother, who you want to believe that Paul Walker will do anything to save. There is nothing redeemable about this character. He talks Paul Walker's character, Lewis, into playing this very, very mean prank. They go and see that this guy's jaw has been ripped off. And then Fuller is like, that's not our fault. I don't feel bad about what I did. Um, what? Because it's, the, it's the writer trying to like, uh, how do we rationalize this terrible idea? First of all, okay, if you truly believe that, then you are also a psychopath and how can we like you? So no, that's not believable that he wouldn't have any kind of remorse or being scared at that. Then when they find out that these kids are involved, they let them go with a finger wag because they are too busy to fill out paperwork. No. I've got too many other cases I'm trying to solve. What? You assholes come in here and give me another one. <laughs> What am I, the police chief of this town? Um, released by the police with a finger wag because there's too much paperwork to do. 
when he tries to contact them, he's trying to find Candy Cane on the radio and they hear him. Yeah. This is a fucker they know has ripped off the jaw of another human being and left him for roadkill. Roadkill, the original title. So <laughs> would you pick up that CB? No, no, you wouldn't. If you picked up that CB and started talking, would you then insult that person, enrage that yeah, person? I was thinking, right, like in that moment, yeah, sorry, sir, please accept our apologies. Well, not to mention the fact that we are to believe that Rusty Nail has spent the entire day just saying candy cane over and over on his CB radio until they happen to pick up, listen to the right channel and respond. He wasn't there at the hotel. And yet now we're believed to believe that 12 hours later, he's been tailing them the whole time. Correct. It's just absolutely crazy. This is light, this jumps yeah. to light speed no. Not only do they know what this truck looks like and can't identify it following them ever, it now becomes supernatural. Now, like you're saying, it becomes a Friday the 13th that jumps the boundaries of real life abilities of another human being because after a rusty nail follows them, an accordion crushes them up against a tree. Mm -hmm. He backs off and leaves them alone without killing them. And what do they do? They do not go to the police. They go straight to pick up Venna and say, you know what, we just don't tell her about this. So no, again, no. If you're almost accordion crushed to your death, you go report this because there's a crazy fucking motherfucker out there trying to kill you. Now, I, I, this moment is another instance why John Dahl is better at making stories than J.J. Abrams is because, yeah, it doesn't make any sense why Rusty Nail would almost kill them and then leave. The line that's in the movie that is not in the script because they're because Steve Zahn's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, we were just playing, we were just kidding, we were just messing around. And then Rusty Nail kind of stops and he goes, oh, well, I was just playing with you too. In, in a way that kind of lets you know this isn't over, but it gives him some motivation for suddenly deciding to stop wearing the script. Yeah, he just stops. Which is fine for suspense. You know, you're keeping your audience on edge. You know this guy's coming back, but then the character's actions that aren't believable. There's no way that they wouldn't go to believe and be just absolutely, they'd be well, like, the this is over now, let's go. But you know what? Got to get your pussy. You know what I mean? Like there's just, it's an overriding. Yeah, that's, <laughs> the, that's the real, the, the countdown or the, the urgency is that he has to get laid. I'll give you that. Maybe that's the only believable thing. <laughs> but we also have to then believe that Paul Walker is somehow desperate for pussy. Listen, that also is the most unbelievable. There is no way that anybody resembling Paul Walker is in need of tail. They're just in fact, like the probably the biggest fallacy of this whole thing. Paul Walker should have played Fuller and Steve Zahn should have played Lewis. Yes. It's like it spirals, it tumbleweeds into this whole train of unbelievableness, which is Rusty Neal at that point, after he's let them go, has recovered the discarded CB radio that Fuller has removed and thrown on the highway. He was presumably nowhere around when not they threw it out. There. Nope, not anywhere there. Somehow found the car and planted it in the trunk. Somehow knows about Venice College roommate Charlotte finds her, kidnaps her, drives ahead of the road that he knows that Lewis and Fuller is going to take so that he can write secret messages to look <laughs> in the trunk. In the script, they go out of their way to show you that uh, Rusty Nell has actually done this in both directions. So they drive, uh, Fuller sees the look sign and then oh. does a U-turn. And he's like, oh, I'm going the other way. They know he's done it on this direction too. Now, actually, that would have been a better twist because they didn't do that in the movie. They just kept oh, That's the one. one difference that was actually better in the script. That would have been better. Although it still would not have made any fucking sense. Because yeah, it's still like, how did he have the time? He didn't. Did someone pass by and say, what are you doing? If that's then still a supernatural, then it would lead you to believe that there was a, like a, a GPS device implanted in the CB radio when they put it back yeah, in. The in 2001, by the way. I will give you, I will give them credit for, for keeping authenticity in the actual CB radio. All of its terminology, language, even the light system and the colors were all accurate to real life. This is true. My dad was, was a semi-truck driver, so I have a little uh, experience. Oh my gosh. Well, this is your like extra invested. I know, right? My dad's oh. handle was, was whiskey stick instead of rusty nail. What and, does that uh, mean? 
Uh, well, it's a, a little stick, I guess, that you use to stir your, your whiskey, also called a swizzle stick. Um, when he, very dainty for someone who drinks whiskey. <laughs> yeah, I don't get it either. But when he introduced me to his friends, he'd introduced them under their CB handles. So there was Gator, Baggy Britches. <laughs> These are my dad's friends. Huh? All I can picture is like a really big, burly, manly guy swizzle stick and some whiskey like that just doesn't go together hey, i didn't ask the story behind it you should have absolutely what kind of screenwriter are you i know, I know. <laughs> that's the real story <laughs> oh my god so after after he finds charlotte and kidnaps her and does the whole writing all the secret messages on the road sign plants the thing in the car they find it then still nobody does anything that's any kind of believable. They all think that now they can outsmart this guy. So he talks these characters into being separated, kidnaps Venom. Somehow well, Venna and Charlotte. he comes across as a little slow-minded or special needs in his speech pattern. Yet he has figured out how to outsmart the police, how to outsmart all of these kids. Maneuvering around with this truck. I mean, it's not, you can't sneak around in an 18-wheeler. You actually called this out when you were reading this, the spinning sound of the wheels is so loud you can't imagine it. Yeah, that's true. And yet, and yet, so super, it's like the butler in Mr. Deeds. It's just everywhere he walks up, super dull. I, I liked Joyride. I can't even put my finger on it. I mean, like, there's an aesthetic, I guess. I enjoy, Maybe it was just the fact that it's kind of a 2001 movie. I mean, like, a month before 9-11, you know? So it was, it's a really a different time, if you think about it. Obviously, you're making a movie in the time that you're making it. This wasn't meant to be a classic of all time. Mm -hmm. But it is very evident that it was made in a different time period. But then, but then again, like you look at Duel, which was 30 years prior, I feel like it holds up so, so well because it really focuses on human emotion. This guy is like terrified. I mean, everyone can kind of relate in some way to road rage. And like, I mean, I've been chased by a dude Happy. for an extended, oh yeah. Like I, it was a couple of years ago out in Calabasas and this guy was going rather slow and I, I passed him and it pissed him the fuck off. And he was like, we were doing 60 or 70 down like a 45 mile an hour road. I was lucky that there were no other cars. I ran a stop sign. There were no cops, obviously. And I was just driving back to work and, and uh, I almost got back to work and he just finally decided to give up but yeah it was terrifying it is terrifying fact, you were david mann that day i was and there was a part where the guy he, he he got in front of me and he stopped he got out of his car and he was walking towards me and luckily there was just enough room on the other side of his car for me to go around him so i did that and got out of it picked it back up and was on my ass again. now am i to understand that at no point in this pursuit was he able to get ahead of you and leave messages on road signs to add to your distress no Luckily, he wasn't able to find my, my real name or, or any of my uh, personal family members. Nobody was kidnapped in this scenario. No. Mm -mm. Huh. Just my pride. <laughs> pride myself my pride. Everything about Duel is just so well paced. Even the ending and Joyride, it's trying to do too many things. And, and it's a lot of stuff that just feels dated at this point. And I can forgive things feeling dated, but none of the things they added, none of the storylines or story threads did anything to elevate the stakes. I mean, just tiny bit, somebody getting kidnapped is just so hyperbolic that you end up not caring, really. Well, you got to think in your mind as the viewer, the, the logistics of, I mean, I guess that's why some stupid movies work is that you're banking on the audience not thinking about it. But how in the world could Rusty Nail have done half of, of all this business? He couldn't. And then the ultimate offense to me, as we've discussed with just the ending, and maybe it's because they couldn't figure out what the ending was, you're hoping that some of these relationships that we have been getting to know and we don't know why, where's the payoff? You've set up that there's this love interest. Paul Walker really wants to get with Lili Sobieski's character. So Lewis really wants to get together with Bennett. At the end of the film, does Venna want to date or sleep with Lewis because of this adventure? 
No, we don't know. They end and they're just in an ambulance like, what the fuck? He's still alive. Same thing with the brother. You've just taken this relationship where you're setting up that you've got this pair of estranged brothers. And did this shared experience bring them closer or did it add more resentment to it? You don't know because nothing's discussed or paid off. We don't really know what happened to Rusty Nail. All we find out is that like he used the ice trucker guy's body to fake his own death, right? And you know what? Again, the forethought and planning for Rusty Nail, Uncanny, I didn't know that you'd have time after you sliced in half and blew up the ice cream truck with the guy supposedly in it, that you had time to double back, get the body, store it just in case you had to blow up your own truck and fake your own death. Yeah. Like that's pretty brilliant. And also like there was some, some line about, oh yeah, well nobody's seen the ice truck guy, but they didn't make any complaints, so no one's looking. There was some weird line. I didn't write it down, but it was just <laughs> lazy. Like that guy, that was the only person I cared about in the film, really, was the ice truck guy. He drove out of his way to bring back a credit card. He was so super nice. He saw that those kids were in distress, offered to help them. Mm -hmm. And then what does he get? Fucked. I did kind of equate the gas station scene in Joyride a little bit to the cafe scene in Duel, where when Paul Walker goes in there, like, it's possible that the trucker is somewhere in there with him. It's not as well done, of course, but I wondered if, if, that, if that was what they were kind of going for. It should have been, because all they did once they got inside, they forgot about the chase, and then they tried to focus in on this love triangle for no reason whatsoever. Paul Walker's character of Lewis is really the only character with any kind of redeeming value because let's look at, let's just look at Venna's character. We are get introduced to her talking on the phone with Lewis in that first scene, in that opening scene. And she's kind of a bitch. <laughs> like she's like, uh, yeah, I just broke up with this guy and made him cry. Wouldn't you cry if I broke up with you? Why do I like you? Why do I want you guys to get together? It basically seems like you're a bitch and Paul Walker is just this nice, good looking guy that could get any other girl. You're not that a better. It, look, I like Paul Walker. I do the fucking Fast and Furious podcast for crying. I also like Paul a better Walker. actor could have could have done something with Lewis, I think. I don't know. I think they probably wrote him and directed him very specifically for this role. I mean, his character is very homogenized. He's basically a pussy that can be kind of led in any direction. Like you put a carrot in front of that horse and he could follow and let Venna kind of influence his actions and motivations. Brother that he hasn't seen for five years can easily talk him into doing anything. He's just a little bit of a puppet. He's not very, he doesn't really take a lot of initiative you'd think that it's his actions and decisions driving the movie, but it's really, it's actually almost all Fuller's actions and motivations that drive the storyline. Everything he does is what makes the story move. You know what would have made this movie work? <laughs> if if oh, it had been that. revealed that Fuller and Lewis were one person. <gasps> ah, the fight club scenario. <laughs> And it was the duality of his personality oh, that was at odds, you see. Holy shit. Another Roku there. So again, why do we care about this character? Basically, everything, they brought all of this on themselves. They were horrible. They deserved all of this. Why do we like or care about these characters? Nothing we see them do in this film gives them any kind of redemption. It's so problematic in and of itself. Well, let's talk a little bit, besides our reception of it, what did the audience think about this when it came out? In 1971, when Duel was released as a movie of the week, it was the 18th highest rated movie of that year. I don't know how many other movies there were, so maybe there were 18. I don't know. <laughs> but it got enough attention that released theatrically and even though it's got critical acclaim, I can't say that monetarily it it broke records or anything but it's certainly become a cult classic and let's just say that it was made on a shoestring budget four hundred and fifty thousand dollars is what it cost to make this movie. And it was, it was shot, shot in uh, 12 days on a 10-day schedule so they went two days over to shoot something like that it was so economized and part of that was very very thoughtful planning by the director so that's where the director does come into play yeah, he also credited his um his upm his unit production manager kind of helped him plan 
so that they could try to get it done in the 10 days. I can't say that Mr. Dahl did the same thing. This was so chaotic and all over the place. I can't even imagine this thing cost 20, Joyride cost 23 million to make. Where did it go? Where are you? Yeah, where is that money being used? Was it really well utilized, that budget? I mean, they, they wrecked a couple cars. Oh my God, the location, the set list on Joyride is crazy. It's chaotic. And someone might argue that that was purposeful so that the whole thing, like your movie feels chaotic and that's something purposely done to throw your audience off balance. But to me, it felt like bad planning and not a purposeful result of thoughtful mm -hmm. intention by the director. I think he was, I think John Dahl did what he could with pretty bad script. Even with all of the different endings that were filmed and you can see if you're a careful eye, some scenes continuity wise don't match up because they were filmed to go with a different ending. So there's, there's some fault to that of not being clear where they were going. And I think ultimately they chose the ending that they did, which is the only version where Rusty Nail lives because they were intending a franchise. And there is an existing on this earth, a joy ride two and three. Which I, I want to see just because, no. but my question is, how can they possibly continue this? And I know everyone is recast. The guy that played Rusty Nail is not there anymore. Ted Levine. And the audience reception for this movie was not terrible. When I'm looking at Rotten Tomatoes, when I'm looking at Wikipedia, when like I'm looking at IMDb, it gets pretty good reviews. 2001 was, I mean, that was the same year as the first Fast and Furious. I feel like Paul Walker was, well, he's always hot, but you know, he was really hot <laughs> in 2001. So for me, and you know, I would say there's no reason Joyride should not have been as successful of a film as Duel. It had star power, it had budget, it had writers that Silicon Valley is one of the more popular shows in the last decade or so. Like it was a really big hit and Harvard guy who I don't really know very well, but he's a driving force behind that, which is nice. I, I, I think that Mike Judge probably helped him out. He said, let me take your script and make it make sense, young. <laughs> Was that for Silicon Valley or? <laughs> Silicon Valley, yeah. Mike Judge is the showrunner, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Too bad he couldn't have done that here. Yeah, exactly, would have fixed this. Yeah, Mike Judge is fucking genius. Totally. My take on this one, this matchup, I feel like Duel had Joyride on the ropes the entire round, entire yeah, it fight. Was, it was a pretty bloody affair altogether. Oh. I, I had to look away. It was <laughs> so brutal, this matchup. I wanted it to be a more fair fight, but there were just things as I re-examined this that were, I had forgotten how upset it made me. <laughs> I'm a little, I'm a little biased in the sense that, you know, like I've, I've loved Duel since I first saw it in high school, but I mean, Joyride is so blah, you know, in a way, the fact that it is kind of a, an homage to Duel, you'd think that would make me like it even more, or at least it would give it a, a better chance. All it needed was just maybe like another pass on the draft or something. I mean, like, you're right, it could have been so much better. But I feel like there are hints of good ideas in there. Just overall, didn't totally work. And agreed. I think they didn't want to do a complete ripoff of Duel. They wanted to make it their own film, and that's very respectable. I just don't want to see a remake necessarily of a film that's already been made. I want to see your twist on it. So, Especially when it's already, the, the original's already good. Great. How do you put a twist on that? I mean, that's, that's what screenwriters live for. Every idea is a reiteration of another idea, right? There's no original ideas. Which so, is what we're here to explore, Amber. <laughs> How wonderful and what a different movie it would have been if they just chose one or the other. If they chose a burgeoning romantic relationship or if they made this a brother's movie and this could have been like a like a bromance. Fuller's redemption. And then made Fuller likable. Yeah, step one. <laughs> There's that great element of having the second person added on your journey to be unpredictable and kind of mess things up or, or make a rash decision or just be in the wrong place at the wrong time and up those stakes. Those are, those are such valuable story devices. 
along the way, if they had their characters act in believable manners, if they had gone to the police and filed reports and the police were trying to track this guy the whole time, I personally would have felt better. I would have felt like him buy into what's happening here. Just like man's character didn't have any chances to escape, but every chance that he thought he really acted in a way that anybody could try to think their way out of the situation. And not to mention, like camera work in Duel is so great. There's even kind of like some camera direction in the script that's really good. Like, for example, there's a part where man comes around a corner and all you see in the shot is his car and he just slams on the brakes and he gets out and he's like, holy shit. And the camera zooms in and you see the outline of the truck uh, with like the car in the middle. And it's just like such a great reveal because there's no edit. There's no cut. It's just a, a zoom out. I mean, and then you're talking about writing that screen direction in, and some screenwriters don't feel comfortable doing that. They don't feel comfortable directing on the page. You really should. Your director can always change that, but likely if you're very specific and see something, make sure that your audience and your director can see it too. There's things that, of course, are just very Stephen. The one long shot in the diner where you are following man out of the bathroom, it is this very- Oh, you follow him all the way back and all the way up front again. It's not an easy thing to do, especially back then when you have a handheld camera. Mm-hmm. Man, that, that kind of thought ahead about how you want your audience to feel, following him is so effective. Well, guys, just think it's right after the part where he crashes, and then like that whole sequence just kind of lets you, the audience kind of come down. When he gets back to the front, holy shit, the truck's parked outside. That one long camera move, Stephen uses it in every one of his films since. Kind of like the the bipack shot in Jaws. It's, he uses that in almost every film as well. And the steady cam hadn't even been invented yet. That was five years away. I don't know how many takes it took, but it, I just give that so, so much respect. But that definitely was a director call, which doesn't really feed into my argument. It's just me glorifying. I think it's safe to say another similarity is even though the original dual script was very good, both directors did add positive things to both both scripts. Absolutely, as they should. They probably made choices that took away from it, and they probably made choices that added to it. There wasn't a whole lot to take away from that squelch script. (laughs) (laughs) Just take away some pages, if you ask me. Maybe the pacing, moments of tension, I think the perceived moments of letting your audience breathe and come down and trying to have moments of levity just weren't effective in Joyride. Yeah, just everything about Duel is just like so believable. Like the people's reactions, Dennis Weaver's reactions, whereas Joyride is, I mean, I guess you could say it's escapism to a degree. It is true. I mean, maybe this movie wasn't set out for everybody to believe, like it was supposed to be fantastical. And I do get that. The tone of the movie is different from the tone in Duel. And that's kind of from the outset. It's a Joyride has like a teen demo feel to it. But I guess my suggestion to them would have been if you are going to go outside the realm of believability and just do crazy shit like that, then you need to build that into your universe. You need to build it into the rules of your universe like Scream did. Scream broke every trope and made fun of it, but they hung a lantern on it and made sure that everybody in the audience was in on it. So when things happened that were so unbelievable, they have set the stage that this is okay. Yeah. You can't have some things that are believable and then some that are not. They, then it, your audience becomes confused because you're, I think your screenwriters were confused. I think it's a testament to uh, Steven Spielberg and, I mean, Richard Matheson as well. The fact that he picked Dennis Weaver, or one of the reasons he picked Dennis Weaver is because his uh, performance in Touch of Death, wasn't it? Touch of Evil. Uh, Touch of Evil, uh, is his character in that movie is is in such a panic and that, and that, like, his believability with that emotion was exactly what Steven had in mind and totally worked. Thoughtful casting. And I don't know, maybe the casting in Joyride could have been a little bit stronger. Again, 2001, it makes sense. It is a very, it feels very 2001. Yes, absolutely. Uh, well, I would, I, and this one, I gotta say, gotta say that Duel comes out hands, on top. Hands, hands down. I think that's kind of our, our show for today. 
squeezed all the milk we can get out of <laughs> I don't sure. like that analogy. <laughs> I could talk about dual for another two hours. A joyride. I, I could. <laughs> I'm tapping out on joyride. <laughs> well, thanks everyone for tuning in and listening. And please join us next time. Yeah, subscribe, leave us a review. <laughs> or if you don't want to review, just give us a five-star rating and we'll we'll call it even. That's right. You don't even have to listen. Just arbitrarily yeah. thumbs up and roll on. Which which would mean you won't you don't hear this message that we're and that you decided oh. to rate us of your own goodwill. But that's fine too. <laughs> that's okay. We'll we'll get better with age, just like dual. <laughs> All right, everyone. Have a great night. See you next time. If you don't want to review, just give us a five-star rating. Sound effects courtesy of the Soundly app. Go to GetSoundly.com for your complete sound effect platform. Intro and outro music for this episode is District 4 by Kevin McLeod. Hear more like this on Incompetech.com. And if you get the chance, check out my interview with Keith Lowell Jensen on his podcast, Keith Lowell Jensen Presents, The Keith Lowell Jensen Show, with Keith Lowell Jensen. He provides you with all your Keith Lowell Jensen needs. Also check out his comedy specials on Amazon Prime, Not For Rehire, and Atheist Christmas. We had a great time chatting, so if you can check that out, do it. Thanks for listening, everybody, and be sure to rate us on iTunes and give us a review if you feel like it. Shoot us an email at filmfightpodcast at gmail.com if there's a matchup you'd like to see. And that's it for this week. Catch us next time for another episode of the Film Fight Podcast.